Amen. Glad to be here. Turn with me to the book of Psalms, chapter 12. Psalms, chapter 12. It's good to be here. It's been a great meeting. Uh, we just praise the Lord for all the preaching, everything we've heard, and the fellowship. The 12th Psalm. Two verses. Verse 6, which has already been quoted in this conference. The words of the Lord are pure words, as silver tried in a furnace of earth, purified seven times. Verse 7 will be our focus. Thou shalt keep them, O Lord, thou shalt preserve them from this generation forever. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for all the preaching we've heard. Lord, uh, Father, when our mind goes towards all those that gave their life just to own a Bible, Lord, we ought to be convicted that we neglect ours. Father, I just pray that for these moments you would cause us to to see the wonder that you've given in your word and how you've kept it. And thank you that it is a powerful sword. Father, do that work that you can only do. And let your word have free course. In Jesus' name, amen. A lot of statements have been made in this conference about the word of God. Being the final authority. and So... I would think a very serious question would be, which one? Which Bible? Unless they're all the same, we would need to answer the question, which one? I'll say this before we get into it. I, I have only preached out of the King James Version of the Bible in my 20 years. I've only had men preach out of the King James Bible for the last 20 years. I don't plan on changing. And, uh, and I, I believe there's some biblical reasons why. Why the KGV? Three answers. Number one, because of the promise of preservation. Verse 7. Thou, that's God, shall keep. Them, that's his word. O Lord, thou shalt preserve, that's his word, them, for all generations. God Almighty himself has promised to keep his words pure in verse 6 and to every generation. That simply means that every generation will have available to it God's pure words. Not everyone in every generation will have that availability. There's people today in corners of the earth that don't have that availability. So we ought to thank God that we have the availability that we have, that every generation will have God's words. Turn with me over here to Matthew chapter 5. I want to see Jesus' Our Lord on the Sermon on the Mount tells us about preservation. 
uh, he brings it down just a little bit more. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, he says, Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. Verse 18, For verily I say unto you, Till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or tittle shall in no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled. Jesus said that even the punctuation of the Bible would be preserved. That's a jot or a tittle. He goes on in, in Matthew twenty four thirty five. Jesus says, Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words... Now, that's plural. That's not singular. My words will not pass away. Psalm 119, verse 89, Forever, O Lord, thy word is settled in heaven. 1 Peter 1, 25, but the word of the Lord endureth forever. Second Timothy 3.16 All scripture is given by inspiration of God. So there has to be a book in existence in this generation that has all the words. I mean, that's simple, isn't it? Well, which book is that? Well, that, that brings us to some history. Because I don't have a Bible verse that says, thou shalt use this version. But it does bring us to some history. And on our second point, we want to talk about the perseverance through persecution. Now, if God preserves something, he preserves it to persevere. Now, I do not hold to the King James Bible because of King James or the translators. I hold to it because of the history of the Greek manuscripts from which it is translated. And that history is a well-documented history. You know, it, and we don't start with King James or the translators. We can start in Acts 13, 49, when it says of the church of Antioch, the word of the Lord was published throughout all the region. Now, we know that the apostle John lived long after the other apostles. He wrote the last written book of the New Testament around A.D. 95. He wrote that to the seven churches of Asia Minor, the book of Revelation. We also know from history that John ordained a man by the name of Ignatius of Antioch. Now, Ignatius of Antioch gathered together an army of scribes, and he so flooded out of the church of Antioch the entire Roman Empire with the Greek Bible, that Caesar himself in A.D. 107 seized Antioch, destroyed and sacked the city, and took Ignatius back to Rome to be eaten by wild beasts in the Roman Colosseum. For what? Publishing the Word of God. They, the, the scribes that were under Ignatius scattered throughout Asia Minor. And through those... We have a history of those manuscripts going through and the church fathers, like Polycarp, who, who was, was uh, ordained by Paul. I mean, I'm sorry, John, who wrote out of the church of Samaria. And the first texts of the Bibles were written in Greek and Syriac. Now, something happened. When we study the history of the Bible, it is a history of ink and blood. 
And Rome persecuted the Christians for even owning a Bible. But in AD 330, Constantine decided that he wanted to marry the Roman Empire to Christianity and was birthed that mother of harlots that our brother Newell told us about, the Roman Catholic Church. Now, so he brings it in. He ordered 50 complete New Testaments from the churches of Asia Minor. So let me stop right there. The canon of the New Testament was before Constantine. Now you'll hear people say that the Catholic Church canonized the New Testament. They don't know their history. And he ordered these. Now, about 60 years or so expired. And in 395, the Greek church decided that it was going to split away from the Roman church. And the church was split into the east and the west. Now, the, in 395, the Byzantine Empire arose and it became the Greek Orthodox Church. And they took manuscripts and they said in those days that they had the originals. Some of the originals. Now, we don't know if they did or not. They claim to. But they came together in 395 with what is called the Byzantine text of the New Testament. And for 1,000 years, that text was outlawed in all Roman providences. And historians say that millions of Christians were put to death, mostly Anabaptists, for even possessing one of these Byzantine Greek New Testament Bibles in the Roman providences. Because in 440, Jerome came along and came up with what was called the Latin Vulgate. And he actually added books to the Old and New Testament. And that was the official Bible of the Catholic Church in the, in the Western Europe until, guess what happened? Constantinople, the head of the of, of of the Greek Orthodox Church fell under the Muslims in 1453. So in 1453, Western Europe gets something that it hasn't happened. It gets a refugees of Greek Christians flooding in, and guess what they've got with them? They've got their Greek Bibles. And 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 so as they come in with their Greek Bibles. Filled, a man by the name of Erasmus takes some of the manuscripts of these Greek uh, Bibles and in, and in 1515 he compiles them into a New Testament that is called the Received Text or the Textus Receptus. Martin Luther took that, took that copy and translated a German Bible. Spanish took it and translated a Spanish Bible. A man by the name of Tyndale. Wanted to bring the word of God to English. And he defied the Pope. And said that the average plowboy in London one day would know the word of God greater than the Pope. And Tyndale took from Erasmus's Greek New Testament and translated into the Tyndale Bible. And he used Anabaptists to smuggle those Bibles into England because the Pope was after him. He fled and hid under the protection of Martin Luther. They took Bibles and hid them in flour sacks and, and smuggled them into London. They caught Tyndale. They brought him back. They burned him at the stake. And because of the legends of Polycarp of Samaria, which I think 
you were referring to, and his reluctance to burn, that they tied a rope around his neck so he could not speak. And before they could put, they could put, before he could die in the flame, they pulled it back. He said, God opened the King of England and the Pope's eyes to your word. And at that point, he died. Now, for 1,500 years, for 1,600 years, there has been one line of Greek New Testament manuscripts. One. The Catholics use the Latin. Now, I'm not a Greek Orthodox, but God preserved his New Testament in Greek through that church. He used them as an instrument. 1604, King James comes along, and there's several Bibles out there. There's the Coverdale, the Tyndale, the Bishop's Bible, the Great Bible. He says, let's make an official Bible. And in 1604, he brings together 54 Greek scholars to to compile a Bible. And you know, it is 91% the exact match, word for word, of what Tyndale had already translated. That was published in 1611. The English was changed just a little and revised in 1789. And here we have it. We have an unbroken line of succession of the New Testament canonized from 350 A.D. to this present Bible that I hold right here. It's right here. 1,600 years. Now, that sounds like every generation, doesn't it? Well, what about the new Bibles? What about the new Bibles? What about them, Brother Rob? What's going on with those Bibles? Well, in 1933... Let's get the history here. In 1933, a group of scholars, or archaeologists actually, uncover about 46 manuscripts in Egypt that have been buried under sand since around 300. And they took those manuscripts and they said, these are a little bit older. And indeed, they probably are a little older. They date around 280. The earliest manuscripts that we have left, because the Muslims destroyed them when they destroyed Constantinople, is about 350. And they said, well, these 40 Greek manuscripts, because they're older, they're better. Now, we've heard this. And so, because they're older, they're better. And in 1961, the Catholic Church made a declaration that it needed an ecumenical text of the Bible to bridge, now listen to me, to bridge the Protestant and Catholic world. So in 1964, a man by the name of Nestle had taken some stuff of a man named Alon, and four Catholic priests, three of which are Jesuits, And the Jesuit order was started to stamp out Protestants and the Bible. Matter of fact, the Jesuits tried to assassinate King James and the translators. It was the Jesuits that put Tyndale to death. It was the Jesuits that put Whitcliffe to death. And three Jesuits come together and they compile a Bible in 1964, a New Testament text. And by the way, the leading man of that 
Mr. Nestle, denies the deity of Christ, the virgin birth, and does not believe that the books of Second Peter, the books of James, and the books of Second and Third John are inspired. Now, that's his writings. That's what he says. And so they come together and they bring together these manuscripts, and, and it's called the Nestle Alon or Allen text. Every New Testament modern version that you have is derived from the Nestle's text. The NIV, the ESV, and all the way down through. New American Standard, I don't, all of them. Now, there have been five decrees by the Catholic Church outlawing the Greek text that we know as the Byzantine text or the majority text. But there's only been an endorsement of the Nestle Island text. Now, so all these new Bibles come. So let's look at these and see. You know there's 40 manuscripts and there's 3,000 major contradictions or variances within the 40 manuscripts. They contradict the King James manuscripts 8,000 times. Now get this, there is 2,900 words missing from the New Testament text that's in the King James Bible, or the Tyndale Bible, or the Coverdale Bible, or the one Luther wrote, or any other of the Greek Byzantine texts. 2,900 words in the New Testament alone, that is the equivalent of the books of First and Second Peter. And that's a lot. Now, the Catholic Church has been the enemy of God's word and God's truth for 2,000 years. And they didn't start getting any better in 1964. And the Catholic Church is the mother of all harlots. And they've come up with a way to try to bring all the daughters of the harlot back into the great whore. And they've bridged a gap by providing us these new texts. And so these new texts... Now... What we'll hear is the slight of men. We'll hear some seminary professor wearing skinny jeans and a bow tie twist things around. And they'll say things like this. You'll never find one Greek New Testament text and all the majority texts that agree. Well, they're right in this sense. So, er, there's misspellings. But there is a difference between a minor variance and a major variance. Now, I call it the majority text. It's called the majority text by many. You know why? Because there are 5,621 total ancient Greek manuscripts. The Byzantine text makes up 5580. That means there's 5,600. Ancient Greek manuscripts and the ones we're talking about make up 5,500 of them. They'll look and say, oh, there's contradictions in those two. Well, now, look, a lot of our King James only people, we do ourselves more harm than we do good. And you know what? There is. Out of 5,500 Greek manuscripts, there's nine major differences. A total of nine. 
And all nine are found in two, in two manuscripts. So I've got 40 manuscripts that have 8,000 contradictions. And I've got 5,500 manuscripts that's got nine. Yeah, I, the math isn't hard to figure out. Scribes make errors. And there are some errors in this. But you see, they don't teach that scribes made errors. You know what they teach? They teach, you say, what, what about the 2,900 words? And they'll say, well, those were added by scribes. And so they charge us with corrupting the Word of God. Now, I don't know who these Egyptian Christians were. We don't know. There were good groups and heretical groups in Egypt. We have no clue. And they could have had incomplete manuscripts. We don't know. And the words were dropped. We don't know. I know, I do know this, that if I gave out a piece of paper and handed it to Brother Jackson and it went all the way through and everybody made copies, which would be the most likely error, a word dropped or a word added? It'd be a word dropped. Well, you know what? They made a lot of errors. 2,900 of them in dropping words. Now, you say, but now, Brother Rob, these words don't mean much. These words here, these aren't, these aren't real bad words. Well, you know, yeah, I want to get to a few differences on some of the words here in just a minute. But I want to say this real quick. And this is where I want to make it clear. In Ezekiel 30, we're not, I'm not going to turn here, I don't have time, but in Ezekiel 34, 19, the Lord says to his shepherds, he says, As for my flock, they eat that which ye have trodden with your feet, and they drink that with ye have fouled with your feet. Now, the word of God is typed unto bread and water. We, his sheep. And he says, you have caused their water and their, and their uh, food to be fouled. Now, you know what the word fouled means? It means to stink. They have corrupted your water with their stinking feet. And so I'd like to say to the publishers of the NIV, get your stinking feet out of my drinking water. I like to say to the publishers of the New King James Version, which is not even a translation. There's really only two modern translations out there. Uh, King James is a glorified paraphrase. The New King James. Get your stinking feet out of my drinking water. I say it to the New American Standard and the ENS and, and to the ESV, the HIV, and whatever else out that they got there. 200 manuscripts. Now, there's one other difference real quick. You know, there's one huge difference between this book and all those. This Bible's not copywritten. You know what that means? That means the Landmark Baptist Church to start publishing King James versions if they wanted to. Those versions are copywritten, which means you've got to pay royalties, brother. You've got to pay out the money. Don't tell me. You ain't fooling nobody. You ain't fooling nobody. With your scholarship. Now, Anabaptist died by the millions, and many died by the millions. Now, Brother Horn just preached from 1 Timothy 3.16. Now, I've got this list. I've got three verses I want to talk about. 
1 Timothy 3.16. Now, I'm going to pick out the ESV. And the reason why I'm going to pick it out is because right now it's the bestseller. And it is the bestseller amongst conservative Christians. And it probably, of all the new Bibles, it probably is the most conservative. So I'm going to pick out their strong man, not their weak man. I'm going to pick out their strong man. 1 Timothy, as we read 3.16, God was manifested in the flesh. Now his whole sermon was based on that we focus on Christ. ESV says, he who was manifested in the flesh. King James, God was manifested in the flesh. ESV, he who was manifested in the flesh. Big difference, isn't there? Colossians 1.14, the King James says, In whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sin. The ESV reads, In whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Oh, no blood, no deity in, 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 in Timothy, and no blood here. I want to have you turn one other place. Turn with me to Acts. Chapter 8. Now, some of you that have studied this subject, you already know where I'm going. Acts chapter 8. Now, our brethren gave their lives for this. For 1,500 years, the, the, the Greek text that, that, that upholds this for 1,000 years was outlawed and punishable by death. And their history says they put over 2 million to death. For just possessing the Greek manuscripts that underline this. And now they've come out, the Catholics have come out and said, we want an ecumenical Bible. We want to get along with the Protestants. We want a text that we can all agree on. First Tim, I mean, Acts chapter 8. Let's see if these changes, if these verses mean anything. Now, we know the story of the Ethiopian eunuch, and so we're going to cut through it, but... In verse 35, the King James reads, Then Philip opened his mouth and began at the same scripture and preached unto him Jesus. Verse 36, I'm reading from the King James. And they went on their way. They came unto a certain water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What doth hindereth me to be baptized? And Philip said, If thou believest with all thine heart, thou mayest. And he answered and said, I believe. That Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And he commanded the chariot to stand still. Now let me begin reading from the ESV in verse 36. And you follow it in your Bibles. Now I will say it reads almost identical in the NIV and the New American Standard. Let me read this. Now you watch. Verse 36. They were going along the road. They came to some water. See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, and he baptized him. Are we missing anything of importance? Now, that can't be Catholic. What precedes baptism? Salvation. Profession of faith. Not just profession of faith, but profession of faith in the Son of God. Matter of fact, you know what the most popular popular word that is taken out? It's the word Lord. 
They don't like Lord. They don't like Lord. They don't like blood. Yeah. They don't like sin either. Sin makes the top ten of words that they take out. They don't like the word sin. Now, I'm not saying that I don't ever look at some of these as reference points. But what we've got is we've got a generation of seminarians that are training preachers to go to their pulpit and to make them feel like that they are dependent on the preacher's knowledge of the Greek to understand the Bible. And as Roscoe Brown used to say, a little Greek is a dangerous thing. A little knowledge of the Greek is a dangerous thing. Now, I'll say this, and then we'll just about close. We have God's Word. It's been purchased with the blood of martyrs, both Baptists and non-Baptists. And ours just sit at the house. Now, we're in a day where we have to stand. We have to stand for God's word. And I say like Tyndale, the average man filled with the spirit of God, with this English Bible in his lap, can know more of the things of God than all the liberals together. You know, Brother Paul said, make it simple, sound, and sure. Well, you know, you, you know this is not that difficult an issue. But some would not make it so simple. See, see, error has to be complex. Truth is simple. They go along and tell us, well, now in the originals, anybody ever heard that? Anybody ever heard a preacher say that? We have no originals. You're a liar. We don't have them. They were destroyed in Constantinople or before that. We have no originals. In the oldest and best manuscripts, let me translate. God didn't preserve his word for 1,500 years. For 1,500 years, the word of God was buried under 200 feet of sand. While Tyndale was burned and Wycliffe was burned and, 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 and Anabaptists were put to death for possessing the Greek New Testament, they didn't have the words of God. They were buried under sand for 1,500 years. Now, you know what? Your scholarship, uh, I, I just dismissed that out. I'm going to take this right here. Thy word he'll keep to all generations. I don't need an archaeology to come along and finally give me the words of God. I actually literally sat there in studying this, and I saw a scholar who is persuading some people. I don't even know if he's a scholar, really. Persuading the minds of people. He's got a book out. His name is James White. I'll name him. And he stood there, and he said, I don't want what a scribe wrote. I want what John wrote. That's why I reject these 3,000 words. What arrogance. He said, if Tyndale knew what I knew, he would have rejected those manuscripts. What arrogance. Bowing at the altar of intelligentsia. God's word is preserved. I can't prove every line in history. 
I got enough history, but that doesn't matter. You know what I've got? I've got God's promise. He'll preserve his word to all generations. And this is what he's used for the last 1,500 years.